So two weeks ago, I said, Eric brought the heat. Apparently, I brought the rain. <laughs> terrible joke. Terrible joke. Nice. So if you are new uh, this morning, welcome to Element. There are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There's also sermon notes on all the communion tables around the room. If you have a smartphone like an iPhone or an Android or some such thing, you can download a free app called Uversion. And in Uversion, you click on Live. It'll bring up Element, and you'll get the sermon notes from this morning as well as the verses. So we're all hip and cool like that. Uh, so we are doing this thing at the end of November, the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. We're calling it the Agape. Uh, originally, the, the church, in, when it was first formed, had these things called the agapes. They were called love feasts. And, and, and everybody's like, a love feast? Oh, my goodness, that's like some pagan ritual, the love feast. It's all about orgies. And they actually looked at the church and thought there was something wrong. And no, it was just called the love feast because the agapes where God's people got together and they loved on each other. They ate together. They broke bread together. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to take something very ancient, make it a little bit modern, invite all of you guys to come. So there's going to be a sign-up sheet in the back. And the reason we're doing a sign-up sheet is if you forget to sign up, you can still come. Don't feel like you can't come because, oh, I forgot to sign up. You can invite your neighbors. You know, oh, I forgot to sign my neighbor up. They can't come. No, they can still come. We just want you to sign up because we need to know how much food that we need to make. So if you would do as a favor and actually sign up, on it actually says number coming, the number of adults, because there's going to be something a little different for adults as well. So if you sign up for that, make sure you tell us the number of adults that are coming, so you know how much food to make. And it's not pizza, don't worry. It's going to be a good, good meal. If you never have like a good Thanksgiving meal, it's not going to be turkey, but it's going to be something really good and you'll probably really enjoy it. Nice, good home-cooked meal. So sign up for the agape. It's going to be a lot of fun and hopefully grow us a little bit. All right, why don't you guys stand there and hear God's word? You're like, wow, no dilly-dallying, just jumping right in this week. That's right, no jokes for you. 1 Corinthians 12.11 says this, All these are the work of one and the same Spirit, and He gives them to each one just as He determines. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that we'd be a people that begin to understand how You made us, so we in turn uh, can be the people that You call us to be, that our focus would not be ourselves, but it would be You, that our lives would reflect the goodness that You place within us. Amen. Have a seat. So we're doing a new series called Made. It's about how God made us. It is topical. I do not do topical very well, but I'm going to give it a go. <clears throat> if it's terrible, sorry for you. You know, you got to live with it, whatever. Uh, and as we talk about this, like I told you last week, as we go with this, do not forget that everything is about Jesus. It is not about us, even though we are talking about how God made you. Uh, the last week I told you we all have major struggles in our lives about following Jesus. So don't claim that you don't. Don't claim you never had questions or any problems. But sometimes these struggles come down to how we view that God has made us. And so this series is going to help you to trust God, that He made you how He wanted you to be. And we simply need to embrace that. So last week we talked a whole lot about you simply being you in light of who Christ is and His redemption. You can grab that and run with that. This week's going to make a lot more sense because we're going to start to discuss how you can actually start to grow. And when we start to grow in who Christ calls us to be, it is never one size fits all. It is not like a flex fit hat you put on and everybody does it the exact same way. If you have a Bible, open to 1 Samuel chapter 17. He <laughs> just set it down, that's so funny. First <laughs> Samuel chapter 17. This is the story of David and Goliath. David and Goliath. Goliath is a giant from the Philistines. He's this, uh, there's two armies arrayed. There is Israel's army and the Philistines. And Goliath 
Goliath is like their champion. He's a giant. He's a loudmouth. He's like one of the guys at the bar that's had too much to drink and wants to fight everybody. That's Goliath. And he's standing there just making fun of the armies of God over and over. And he's huge. And one of the things he actually says is, send me a champion. I will fight him. And if you guys win, we will be your slaves. And if you win, you know, or, or if we win, then you're our slaves. And everyone's afraid to go out and fight this guy. So David's a young shepherd goes to visit his brothers in the army and he gets there and he hears this guy mocking the Israelites. And he's like, what is up with that? Why is everybody so afraid of this guy? And so in 1 Samuel 17.32, David says to Saul, who was the king, who for some reason is not going out to fight himself, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. So Saul, the king, actually decides to let this 13-year-old boy go and fight this giant, which is another sermon all on its own. But we're not going to go there. And so what Saul tries to do, though, is he tries to help David. He says, okay, I got some armor, and I want to give my armor to David because my armor has helped me, so obviously it's got to be useful to David as well. The problem is in 1 Samuel 9, 2, it tells us that Saul was at least a head taller than everybody else in Israel. So he's a big guy. It'd be like Steve Austin or Andre the Giant from the World Wrestling Federation giving me their spandex to wear and me going and trying to fight in it. Yeah, it's, it's like, oh, terrible picture in my brain. I got to get rid of that. Yeah. In, in uh, 1 Samuel 17, 39, David tries to walk around in Saul's armor and he can't even do it. Saul is like, in Arvinagar, Saul's like a 52 long and David's like a 36 regular. You know, Saul is a warrior and David is a shepherd. Saul's a man and David is just coming into his manhood. And so the things that would help Saul are only going to be a detriment to David. His helmet is too big. The sword's too heavy. Probably can't even lift it up. It's only going to slow David down. And David has the self-awareness and the courage to name the problem. In 1 Samuel 17, 39, he says, I cannot go in these after he tries to walk around in them. So David has to set aside Saul's equipment and simply use what would help him. A sling, some rocks, and his quick feet. As a matter of fact, in 1737, Saul actually says, Go when the Lord be with you. Now, you and I, we live our lives much the same way. Our battle, it is physical, but it is also spiritual. And many times we get burdened because we try to wield weapons in the same way that have helped someone else. How somebody prays, how somebody reads scripture, how somebody starts their days, how somebody worships God, how somebody else serves, how somebody studies the Bible. And sometimes we get so frustrated because it works for them, but it doesn't work at all for us. Now, in Ephesians chapter 6, it tells us that the armor of God is something we all need to put on. So there is this armor of God. It's truth and prayer and righteousness and the scriptures and, and the gospel of peace. All these things will fit us, but they don't fit in the exact same way. And it's time we stop trying to walk around somebody else's armor and walk free how God calls us to be. There are many approaches to spiritual growth that people lay down in books and studies, and many assume that the same methods for somebody is going to work for somebody else, and it doesn't. You have been created by God to be unique. His plan is to not make you look like anybody else other than Christ. If you, if you look at the water that would like grow an orchid, it could drown a cactus. What would feed a mouse is going to starve an elephant. God's creatures need light, food, air, but they need it in different amounts and different conditions. And the key is not treating everybody the same, but finding the right way that we are supposed to grow. Well, if you went to a doctor's office and you walked in, and at the doctor's office, everyone was told, okay, take two aspirin and come back tomorrow. Now, you may have a crappy HMO, and that is your doctor's office. But, <laughs> but if it's not, you, would, you, know, you walk in, if you have a headache, it's great advice, right? 
But on the other hand, if you have a ruptured appendix, you're going to be dead the next day. How long would a business stay in business if they sell one shirt, one size, one color? How long would they stay in business? They wouldn't. The scriptures and how God interacts with people are the best model for this. You see, he has Abraham. He's like, Abraham, go for a walk. Where? That way. Okay. And Abraham goes. He has Joshua. And when he, when he gets to Jericho, run around it seven times. He has Elijah. Go to a cave and take a nap. And then God whispers to him. He says, Moses, you're going to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Lucky you. you know. David plays a harp and he dances. Paul loves theology and pens and scrolls. God comes and he wrestles with Jacob and beats him up which I think is just wholly hilarious, which we'll deal with at some point. Uh, and then on the other hand, he, he lets Job actually argue with him. He comes to Hagar when she is cast out and he comforts her. He gives Aaron a priesthood and an altar. He gives Miriam a song. He gives Gideon a fleece. He gives Peter a new name. You look at Jesus. And Jesus is stern with the rich young ruler. He's tender with the woman caught in adultery. He's patient with the disciples. He's angry with the Pharisees. He's gentle with children and gracious to a thief on the cross. It seems that God never grows two people the exact same way. He handcrafts us. He doesn't pour us like rubber into a mold so we all pop out looking exactly the same. God exists from all eternity, and he painstakingly makes you to be unique because he has never had a relationship with you before. You. And he wants to do something amazing with you. And if you listen to me and how I grow in my relationship with God and what I try to do and you do it the same way, you would hate it because you're not me. Be glad about that, by the way. Be glad that you're not me. When, when I first became a Christian, here's a perfect example. There was this thing that came out. It was very big. It was called journaling. Everybody's got to have a journal. I was told to grow with God, you've got to write in a journal. Write your prayer request. Write what's going on. Write this. Do this. Do that. My sins, my feelings, all of that. I hated it. I seriously, I actually bought a notebook and I tried writing stuff down. And if you looked at what I wrote, it would be like, God... I hate this. I must be in sin because I hate to journal, and obviously the very spiritual people like to journal, and, and I hate it. Please change me, make me different. You know what I found as I talked to other people? Almost nobody liked to journal. Nobody. It worked for someone. They got a book deal. It became gospel for everybody. But it's not gospel. Here's something amazing. Ready? Jesus never journaled. Yay! <laughs> Neither did Abraham or Ruth or Jacob or Isaac. No, C.S. Lewis actually once said that before he became a believer, he kept a journal. After he followed Christ, he stopped because it made him too preoccupied with himself. He stops. Now, is keeping a journal bad? Not at all. Some people love it, and it's great for you. It's wonderful, you know, but you are free. Disciples are handcrafted. And I would much rather walk down the beach with my dog praying like that than sitting and writing everything down. We learn differently. We struggle with different sins. And we all relate to the one true God, one path, one God, but we begin to relate to him differently because he made us uniquely. When Jesus prayed for his disciples in John 17, 21, he says, May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. He didn't say, May they all have the same devotional practices. He says, May they all be in us. The measure of your devotional practices is not your devotional life. It is your entire life. What does your life look like? Because you could read scripture for five hours a day and still be a total jerk, and it's not changing you. Your devotional life be measured by what your life actually looks like. I mean, trying to grow spiritually without taking into account who you are, it's like trying to take a 90-pound gymnast and a, and a 300-pound linebacker and try to train them exactly the same. It's not going to work. You might end up with like 290-pound people who are completely useless. 
So to make spiritual growth possible, you need a couple things. First off, you need to be redeemed. Your life has to be found in Christ. And then God gives you the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit grows you. And the growth is never the same, and it's never predictable. So this morning, I just want to give you a few things. You may walk out of here very happy because I'm going to talk about some fun stuff this morning. What do you need to learn in order to see how God wants you to grow? Here's my first thing. Ready? What makes you feel alive? What brings you to life? Ask, if you ask a friend, how are your spiritual disciplines going? They will look at you like you punched them in the face because they always feel guilty. Well, I should be doing this and this and this, and I haven't, so I, I feel terrible. Try instead asking somebody, what brings you to life? What makes you feel truly alive? We all have these moments in our lives where we're doing something and we think, man, I wish this would never end. I love the way this is. This could be a walk on the beach. It could be a good book, laughter at dinner with some friends. Uh, Maybe it's watching a movie or play or something artistic. Maybe it's taking a long drive, playing an instrument, a certain hobby. A A spiritual discipline is simply an activity you engage in to be more fully alive by the Spirit of God living in and through you because He gives life. It is not doing whatever feels good. And, you know, too much alcohol or food or sex before you're married may feel good for a moment, but then it leads to guilt and addiction and regret. And that is not life. That is not freedom. That is not what God is calling us to. Too often how spiritual we are is determined by a distorted view of what we think counts instead of by God's fullness working in and through us as a people. When you work with joy, when you listen to someone patiently, when you eat gratefully, when you read quietly, when you play happily, it, it all counts. This verse isn't up there, but if you want to write it down, you can write down 2 Corinthians 3.17. And it says, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom. Sustainable spiritual growth happens when you actually want to do what you ought to do. That is what God's Spirit ends up producing in us. This means we have to change how we think about what counts as spiritual. What makes an activity spiritual is not the activity itself. It is whether you do it through the Spirit of Christ. Okay, so what brings you alive? The second thing is, what is your temperament? What is your temperament? Temperament is simply some activities will come more easily than others. What is your temperament? What do you enjoy? It it doesn't mean you discard things that are hard, but it means there are certain ways that you grow that God has designed you to grow. You can develop more quickly by adapting to those things. Here's an example. I am an extrovert. I love talking to people. Friendships usually come very easy for me. And I probably share a little too much with people more, much more. Even up here, I'm told by my wife, uh, you know, more than I should with, with you guys. But I do. I love friendships. They come easy. I connect very easily with people. I really love that. But solitude is very hard for me. I realize once in every great while I should do it. I should sit down, I should get alone, and, but that is very difficult. If you're an extrovert, the notion of a day spent in solitude is like, it's like hell on earth because we don't know what to do with ourselves. So you don't do it all day. Maybe you try it for an hour and you spend some time with God in solitude and the hard thing, but then you focus on how God has truly made you. You develop spiritual friendships and spiritual conversations with those friends. It is not about the time. It is about the spirit working through you. Now, if you're an introvert and you love solitude, it doesn't mean you're more spiritual than other people because them for community comes much more easier than probably it does for you. Uh, This is one reason why throughout Scripture we're called need each other, that we need each other 
to grow. So we become a community that grows forward. Some people have temperaments and they crave regularity and order and closure. This means they have a lot of set. I'm going to pray at this time for this long for these people and here's my list. And that's how I will be connected with God. And for some people that helps them to grow. I have a friend speaking of journaling and for years she has kept a list of all of her prayers, everything that's going on and then she keeps the list of how every all these have been answered and what God has done. And it's amazing and it really helps her to grow with God through this journal. But other people have temperaments that crave spontaneity and change. And your prayer life is never going to look like that. And that's okay. I mean, you may have tried and given up on lists and then you feel all guilty. But that's not because you don't love God. It's because you're not a list maker. You know, God desires to fill you with life, with his spirit. And you cannot be filled up when you engage too much in an activity that is always draining you to be someone he never made you to be. Spontaneous people are capable of as, of as much love as well-organized people. They're just a little bit messier in the process. You know, for me, the act of walking itself many times provides me with enough distraction that I can actually stay focused on what I'm supposed to be praying about. Some people will go out and they connect to God very well when they're out walking in, in the woods or the beach or, or something like that where it's like this is God's creation and I, connect, and I can talk to God very well here because I am connected with what he has made. Some people are activists. They get involved in, in bringing God's redemption to the world as we all should, but they're very involved in it and they charge into a cause and they re- feel very connected to God that way. Some people are very intellectual and they spend a lot of time reading the scriptures and, and looking stuff up and trying to figure out how, you know, parceling this Hebrew and Greek verb and trying to understand how all that works. And their minds are filled with this and they grow closer to God that way. Some people find the spirit most alive in them when they're serving other people. Some people connect most naturally in solitary contemplation. Some people feel closest to God when they're having fellowship with friends. Some people, it's when they feel nearest to God when music is playing and they're singing songs. It is good for us to be familiar with all of these, but you will find that one or two in your life is most gripping for you. You identify those that resonate with you the most, and you find that it's really sustainable for you. You try all the others, and you're involved in those things as well, but your desire for God is going to be the highest in the way that He has created you to be. So, the first one is, what makes you feel alive? What is your temperament? And then, what is your learning style? We are all created different. God made us differently. So here's some good news. Spiritual growth is not restricted to people who like school. God wired us to learn in different ways. Some people I know, they are brilliant. Their mind just works amazingly, and yet they hate to read. And any approach that requires a whole bunch of reading is not going to help them. So you know what they do? They listen to, to Scripture either on CD or MP3s. They listen to Bible studies. They talk about it. And it, some of these things even have questions, and they answer the questions out loud, and they, and they go through these things. They are auditory learners. But they are still getting the Scriptures into them. Still. Some people learn by doing. Uh, my friend John, when he gets something, he will read the instructions seven times before he tries to put tab A into slot B. Me, I could order an airplane on the internet. It would come in a box and I'd be like, I don't need the instructions. And I'd just start screwing the thing together. I'd have a pile of bolts at the end over here and then I'd call John. And I'd say, John, you come over here and I don't know where this goes. And then John would read the instructions and John would say, this is how you do it. And I'd go, oh, and then I could build the plane right the next time. Uh, Adobe. Adobe is always updating their stuff like CS2, CS3, CS4. And so what I do is, is I call Mikey, one of the sound guys, and I'm like, hey, Mikey, can you read it and tell me how to do this? And so he does, and I do it hands-on, and then I have it. I, I learned by doing, when I, when I have to read a manual, I'm like, words, 
You know, I, I don't know what to do with it half the time. And, and that's great, as long, as long as I'm not packing your parachute, right? That's, it's all good. Uh, some people learn best when emotions are engaged. When, when, er, when information is wrapped up in, in art or imagination, it's like, oh, you really connect. Some people can't learn at all when emotions are engaged. We are all different, so you must learn what your learning style is. And then the last one, this one may not be as fun as the others, is what is your signature sin? What's your signature sin? Uh, because we are all unique, we all wrestle with unique set of temptations. No one will sin quite like you. How wonderful is that? Uh, most of the time, our, our greatest temptations and sins are connected to our greatest strength. If you have a gigantic heart, you will have a tendency to want to lie to make people feel better. The people who are great at leading are often tempted to use other people. People who are gifted at peacemaking can be tempted to avoid certain things and certain issues. Uh, people who are of a gift for spontaneity are often tempted by their impulses. And so we must know what tempts us. For, for me, I, I will tell you, ready? You're going to get a big one for me. Uh, my sin that, that I always struggle with is I always want to look better than I really am. I always want people to think I'm better than I am. Sometimes I will claim I am not as busy as I am. Sometimes I act like, uh, like, certain, like I don't have a whole lot of things on my plate. and I sometimes I can't juggle one more thing. And yet people go, hey, do you want to do this? And I'm like, sure. And I, and I say, yes, knowing full well I don't have any time. And by doing this, it's going to take something away from something over, over here that I should be spending time with. And every time I say yes, when I have too much going on, a little alarm goes off in the back of my head. And it's like, you little pastor scumbag. Every time. Every time. And when I honestly tell people I can't do something, many times they actually look at me like, well, what do you have to do all day? I'm like, seriously, you want to change jobs? Give me a day. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll let you, really. But no one ever looks at me like I'm really a scumbag. You know, they mostly understand. And I really, I don't have to lie. I can be honest. When we are aware of our signature sin, we are less vulnerable to them. Knowing where the landmines are is like the first requirement for a safe journey. That's what we need. We're going to talk more about that next week. But when a plant, like say you have a plant, when it's very young, lots of plants need external support to grow. Uh, tomato plants or young trees get tied to stakes. Vines need a lattice of some sort. But as they grow, that framework that was needed in the beginning might actually inhibit their growth later on. You tie a tree to a stake right here and it gets a little taller, it's just going to start bending back on itself and it's not going to want to grow anymore. In spiritual life, a certain structure is important when we are growing. Uh, when our faith is young. Because we have so much to learn about worship and prayer and the Bible. They're all new. But as the years pass, something that helps you in one season may not help in another. And at some point in our lives, we must become responsible for our spiritual growth. A church's job is to equip people for works of ministry. But at some point, your faith has to be made your own. And your spiritual growth must then take place by you saying, Okay, God, I am now going to grow. Be connected with that group of people. We're going to do ministry together. But I realize and understand that spiritual growth takes place because I am connected and I must grow with you. We must always be people that grow. But I think all of these things that we talked about, your, your temperament, what makes you fully alive, your learning style, all these things come down to one thing that you can never do away with. And this is the word surrender. The word surrender. I, I tell you guys a lot, the basic premise of Scripture is twofold. There is a God and He is not you. That's big. Open to Genesis chapter 1. First book of the Bible. First chapter. First verse. whole lot of firsts. It's amazing. I'll let you get there. Genesis 1, 1. Read me the first four words. In the beginning, God. 
That is not bad news. That is good news. Someone far wiser than you is in control of things. In Psalm 14, 1, it says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. I, with, with all these crazy self-esteem classes we're teaching people these days, they're teaching people that they are God. How much more of a fool who gets up in the morning, looks in the mirror and goes, Oh, look, a God. It's crazy. We must devote all of our energies how God made us in service to God. John Calvin once said, The only haven of safety is to have no other will, no other wisdom than to follow the Lord wherever He leads. Let this then be the first step to abandon ourselves and devote the whole energy of our minds to the service of God. In our vernacular, this means that we have to decide who's going to drive in our life. When I ask people that question, they usually say, Oh, oh, Jesus. But really? Really? Then how come when things get hard or uncomfortable or when Jesus calls us to do something we don't want to do, humble ourselves, serve somebody else, stop doing this thing that we really like to do, but it's sin. Why do we then throw him in the backseat and say, no, no, I'm going to drive for this? When Jesus drives, we are no longer in control of our ego. We don't get the right to satisfy our self-centered ambitions. We're not in charge of our wallets. We don't get to gossip, lie, condemn, cheat, intimidate, manipulate. Everything is his. Everything. I mean, this whole idea of what brings you alive, your temperament, your learning style. There is no way that that these things even come into focus for you in your life unless you have surrendered your life to Christ first. And and don't get me wrong. Surrender is not passive indifference. God's will for you is that you live and walk in these things. You make decisions, you move forward. But surrender in all this is the glad and voluntary act of living like there is a God and He is not you. You want to know one person I know that hates the word surrender? Me. Hate it. Because I am simple, and I am stubborn, and I am self-centered, and I am self-serving, and my ability to see my own sin is blinded by my own self-deception. I must surrender. And so must you if we are ever going to be the people God calls us to be. I mean, Jesus understands surrender more than anybody. And if you want to experience the life God has for us, it must start in surrender. We receive power in surrendering to Him that cannot be obtained in any other way. We receive freedom we will never understand until we surrender. Over to the book of Romans, chapter 12. Book of Romans, chapter 12. Sixth book, New Testament. Sometimes when I'm sick... Uh, I when I, and I'm doped up on cough medicine, I, I surrender the keys to the car to my wife, and she drives. But even then, I still step on imaginary brakes. I'm like, where are you going? Slow down, turn it down, and, and I freak out. It, it, this, is, this is because I surrendered the keys, but I haven't really surrendered control. Surrender is something that's ongoing. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Now, a sacrifice, the priest would have an altar and they put the sacrifice on the altar. He calls us living sacrifices. That means we're alive and half time we get up and crawl off of that altar and go, I'm going to go do what I want to do. And he says, you must always put yourself back on the altar. Surrender your life. Turn to Galatians chapter 2. It's like three books to the right. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Crucified. We have died. And we no longer live, but Christ now lives in me. We get new life. 
when our wills are turned over to the will of God, we lose our lives, but we gain a whole new life at the same time, a life that is better than the one that was seeking only ourselves. And you never lose anything of value anyway. God gives you your worth and your dignity. And you begin to understand all of these things about what makes you feel fully alive and your temperament and your learning style. All those things come into focus when we surrender to Christ. Uh, one, a little side note, I think the most glorious thing about God's glory is how good he is. I love in Exodus 33 when Moses says, show me your glory. And God says, I will show you my goodness. Because I think his goodness is tied up in that glory. And when we surrender, we understand that goodness even better. I was reading a book recently that there's a dance instructor. And this dance instructor wrote about all these observations that he saw when he tried to teach people actually how to dance. One of the funniest things that he says in the book is when married couples come in the first day of class, he pulls them aside, he sits them down, and he actually looks at them and he says, okay, you're going to learn to dance. Who leads? And the husband goes... And it takes long moments, and the wife usually says... He leads. And then he doesn't stop. He looks at him and he goes, and who follows? Husband goes, more silence. And the wife says, I follow. I follow. That is simply how you dance. It is simply how you dance. When you are not the one leading, you're not in control. And Jesus is a thoroughly competent leader. And we should be a people who wake up every day and simply say, Jesus, you're leading. I will follow. Because I'll tell you, you don't want to miss the dance. It's why you were born. There is a God. He is not you. I've also told you, you cannot grow uh, in the spirit when you use your freedom, as Paul says in Galatians 5.13, to indulge the sinful nature. And we cannot grow without true surrender. Without true surrender. Freedom that God gives us comes in surrender. And this is one of the greatest things, I think, that communion represents. Because Jesus comes and he surrenders his life so we can live so that we can then be connected to God and have true life again. This is freedom. And I know we give you communion every single week, but I don't want you just to kind of blow off what communion is. It is our great God living and dying, raising to life so that we can live and find new life and grow spiritually into who he calls us to be. Knowing all of these things that God places in our lives only comes out of true surrender. And communion represents that. So this morning when you take that cracker and you break it like Christ's body was broken for us, and you dip it in the wine of the grape juice that represents his blood that was shed for us, you must think, in this act, I am surrendering. And Jesus is going to lead. And that is how I am going to live. Because only then do you find out who truly God made you to be. The band's going to come up. There are a couple songs. And as they do, a couple of these songs are a little bit about surrender as well. And we invite you to, you know, if you fully come alive through music great sing along if you don't sing along anyway just got to learn the things that are even hard for us we're going to worship god through prayer there'll be some deacons and elders in the back and if you are somebody who who hasn't ever thought about you know how god made you and then you haven't even thought about oh but i need to surrender you need to go and pray with them they would they would love to pray with you and talk to you about this whole idea of what surrender looks like and if you feel really weird about going to the back of the hallway, they'll hang up, up here after service. You can just grab one and sit down and talk to them so you don't feel a little awkward. There's offering boxes on the side wall and in the back, and we give because God gave so much to us, giving us part of our worship and giving us part of our surrender as well. Uh, we'll worship God through a fellowship. There's food and stuff in the back. And again, the food is there to entice you to get to know other people, to get you to talk, to start having some of these spiritual friendships that you're supposed to have. 
You know, I mean, seriously, if meet somebody back there, invite somebody to breakfast, lunch, maybe something this week, and sit down and go, what brings you fully alive? Ask them those questions. What brings you to life? Because I think when we figure that out and figure out how that's all tied into surrender, our lives will become what God intends for them to be. God made you unique. But your life in that uniqueness needs to be surrendered to Him. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would make as a people who understand surrender, who understand what you are calling us to be, that, that our wills would be placed within your hands, and that in so doing, we would understand what brings us to life, what, what gifts and temperaments you have given to us. That the great grace and mercy that you have placed within us would then be shared with those around us. And that we could truly live how we were made, uniquely, honestly, as your children. We ask that you would take from our souls all the strain and stress that we feel of trying to do it somebody else's way and simply learning from your Spirit who will teach us how to do it the way you call us to. Thank you for being a great and a good God that is also glorious. Amen.